I'm Philippe de Montebello, and it is my immense pleasure to welcome you once more to the picture, Conversations with Aquabella Galleries. In this episode of the Picture Podcast, we'll explore the life and legacy of Spanish master Juan Miro on the occasion of the new exhibition, Miro the Sculptor, Elements of Nature, currently on view at Aquavera Galleries in New York. The exhibition features 23 bronzes made by Miro from 1966 to 1975, relatively late in the artist's life, as Miro the modernist continued his lifelong love of experimentation, from drawing to painting to ceramics to sculpture. Even at the age of 81, Miro was sharing his enthusiasm for sculpture telling his good friend Alexander Calder, I am an established painter, but a young sculptor. At Acovala Galleries, the 23 bronzes feature some of the artist's most recognizable subjects, abstracted birds and metaphorical portraits of women, many of them incorporating found objects, such as wooden crates, rocks, stones, plastic bottles, a high chair, eggs, and many, many shoes. I spoke by phone with Miro's grandson, Juan Puñet Miro, himself an artist, as well as the manager of his grandfather's estate. Based in Mallorca, Juan Puñet Miro will help us navigate what's known as the Miro Triangle, the sprawling artist's foundation spread across three properties, one in Barcelona, one in the countryside of Montroig, and one among the seaside cliffs of Mallorca. On behalf of Juan Puñet Miro, welcome once again to the picture. So, Juan, it's a great pleasure to be speaking with you. For the benefit of our listeners, tell us a little bit about your own relationship. You were very young, of course, with your grandfather, and then go on to how you are basically managing or dealing with his legacy? As you know, my grandfather passed away in Mallorca in 1983 at the age of 90. And I was just a little boy, 15 years old. However, I was able to spend lots of days with him at home and in the studio. And we constructed a very effective relationship that really, for me, was fantastic because I got to know not only the artist, but the man himself. Was he warm? Did he hug you? Oh, yeah. He was a man very warm. He was able to show his feelings and show his affection and show his emotion for his only daughter, Dolores, my mother, and we were uh, four brothers. Okay. And he loved us so much. He was just a very, very expressive and emotional man. Now... I think you must be also involved with his legacy. For the benefit of our listeners, I'm looking now at Juan, and right behind him is our shelves full of what look like dossiers that must be documentation on his work. And are you planning to publish, or what are you doing with that legacy? This has been the amazing archival uh, work for all. 50 years done by many members of the Miro family and other 
people that were with us in Paris that unfortunately have already passed away. And is basically all the uh, research to publish the uh, catalogues raisonné of all Joan Miró's work, which has been an odyssey, has been an amazing achievement because it like the Picasso's uh, servos. It really comes very handy for auction houses such as Christie's and Sotheby's to keep on track of all the things that are being offered in auction. And for us, as you know, we are very much engaged doing catalogs worldwide, exhibitions worldwide. And of course, we run the uh, three Mira Foundations. So that's a very, very backbone of our everyday life work here in the office. Well, you, you, this is quite extraordinary. And I wonder whether, two things, whether you will have as many volumes as Servos had on Picasso. <laughs> and you use the word odyssey, evokes the notion of quest and finding. Are you discovering a number of things that were really unknown? Indeed. As you know, a catalogue raisonné is never uh, finished because when we have the uh, Miro Committee in our headquarters in uh, Paris, we have that meeting once every two months. Always there is a new drawing, a new book, a new canvas that shows up that we knew nothing about. And then we had to begin, of course, again, thorough research and investigation to make sure that it's not a fake mirror, which is, of course, happening to us all the time because there are lots of fake mirrors in the market as well, especially in internet. So we are like the cops, like the policemen, like the detectives, like the Sherlock Holmes of the mirror world to really be able to track down every single research and make sure that we clean off the market from fakes. Let's go back to Miro himself, to his life. How critical to his work would you say his connection to Catalonia is? His connection to Catalonia was very important because he was born in Barcelona and he had an amazing link, a strong connection to the Mediterranean uh, Greek or Roman culture. And also he was very much influenced by the uh, Romanesque Catalan fresco paintings in the church in the 11th and the 12th century, as well as with the uh, Gothic art. And of course, one of the major influences at the very beginning was the great Catalan architect Antoni Gaudi. But besides this, it was very important for him because he was able to feel very much attached to nature since he had this beautiful farm in Monroch. And it was there where he really began to feel this attraction to nature and Catalonian landscape with mountains, the sea, the sky, the blue. And it was very much nurturing his spirit with this natural uh, melody of colors. It's interesting that you speak so much of the connection to nature because looking at this perfectly extraordinary and beautiful exhibition at the Aquabella Gallery, which shows the works sculpture this time, not the painting, but the sculpture, with uh, the walls and the backgrounds of huge murals of the seascape and of rocks, brings up the fact that nature must have been, in a sense, one of the vectors for him, for sculpture. So much of it is objet trouvé, and one can imagine them, I guess in English you say found objects, 
all around him in, I guess, his peregrinations? Was he a walker, a hiker? Did he walk along the beach, on the rocks? Absolutely. He was able to take long walks on the mountains. He was taking long walks at the beach to be able to collect shells, pebbles, stones, different animals, different bones, different tree branches and all these beautiful roots of trees and roots of cactuses that he was able to bring back to the studio and let them all play beautiful silence opera on the floor and letting them talk to each other, suggesting forms to each other, dialoguing between each other. And little by little, my grandfather was able to take a little sketchbook to see what figure would click into the puzzle with the next figure in order to make assemblages. When we try to place Miro among the 20th century sculpture masters, we have the Toreador force of Picasso. We have the uh, great strinsical weaknesses of human figure by Giacometti. We have the biomorphical figures by Henry Moore, these beautiful slender birds by Brancusi, kinetic art by Calder, and Miro is totally a man that was able to be in touch with nature and bring poetical perspective into the assemblage that he was able to do with all this beautiful element that he was able to pick from nature himself. I was able to see one day at home eating a paella when he was able to just pick up a wishbone from a chicken breast, take flesh off with the teeth and put it in his pocket. And a few years ago, I found the same wishbone at the archives at the Mira Foundation in Barcelona, plus all the sketches and the bronze sculpts that derived from that wishbone. So that somehow gives you the uh, perspective that Miro was like a man that was always attentive to his world around himself, trying to uh, spot different elements that were kind of sending a magnetic connection through poetical structures to his subconscious mind that he was able to inherit it from the surrealist moment. And then with this kind of automatic process of assemblaging, all the little things were making beautiful sculptures like those that we have today in display at Aquabellas. And sculptures, as you say, reflect the spirit, of course, of surrealism the elements like uh, the the wishbone. I would have liked to see the scene if it was a formal dinner party of us putting it in his pocket. Uh, but uh, explain something to me. What is this fetish with shoes? A great many shoes in many of his sculptures. That's right, really amazing, because Mira was able to use those shoes lasts at the uh, beautiful Clemente foundry in Paris to little by little add those things to the different elements that he shipped to Paris from Mallorca. And when I spoke with Clemente 10 years ago in a very interesting interview, he said, as soon as Miro arrived to the foundry with his beautiful tuxedo, so elegant, with the Rolls Royce at the foundry, getting that beautiful 75 years old man coming into this beautiful but chaotic and dirty foundry with plasters and splashes and bronze all around. Then you were able to see 
the work that we were doing that were like casts of Toulouse-Lautrec or a cast of Balzac or a cast of Matignon. And suddenly Miro was able to bring to life all these, let's say, forgotten elements by men in nature or other elements that he was able to find in nature. And he was able to build one by one all these constructions. But before doing this, he used to walk all around the studio trying to spot different things that maybe would be recycled into his constructions. And one day he found these shoe lasts. So suddenly he began to put one after the other to all the elements that he brought from uh, Mallorca. And he said it was extraordinary to see the process, the methodology of Miro doing these sculptures because he would be in complete silence with five assistants around him, putting all the things together, letting one deep and long minute silence go by. And then he would add one shoe last. And then one more silence and he would say, voila, c'est fini. And then they would take photos and make the assemblages to do the elastomer model, the plaster, the signature with Miro next to him, and then the final edition of six or eight bronze sculptures. It was a beautiful process of creation that has been, finally for us, very likely uh, kept in a video that was made by Clovis Prevost, in which you can see all this process of creation. How much, in, in your view, how much humor is there in his work? Because he has to have had a wonderful sense of humor and also very concerned, and he's expressed it many times in, in his writings and, and in his videos and, and speaking, of the conflation of nature with the artificial. The shoe is manufactured. The, the rake head is also manufactured in opposition, but they are often in the assemblage with works of nature. An interesting reconciliation. How does that work, in, in you think, in his mind? And how much, I go back to this, how much humor is it? Because certainly as a response of the viewer to these works, one has a sense of playfulness. Absolutely. I totally agree with what you said before, because Miro had a lot of humor into his sculptures. And at the same time, I would say that he had a great sense of freedom, a total sense of freedom that would allow him to say that probably at the age of 70, I will be able to do some sculptures worth seeing, in which he was able to say that he was being able to push away from his subconscious mind, academia. And that was somehow approaching to this primitivism, to this wit, to this playfulness, to this humor appearance of making this beautiful construction with heads, with distorted eyes with eye bulbs and big noses and big uh, fans and big jaws. And that was a playfulness of humor and a great dose of uh, freedom. And regarding what you said about this kind of human-made elements all together cast in bronze with roots and natural elements from nature, from the beach or from the beach or from the mountain, what happened was that Miro played a lot the philosophy of deconstruction and construction and death 
and life, yin and yang, playing a great duplicity in which, in a poetical approach to it, I would really think about what Philippe Suppot used to do with the automatic writing and the great shamanic book that were published with Andre Breton in 1929. So in a sense, I would say that this automatic writing process of mine, totally detached from uh, the control of reason, it was what really allowed Miro to make these amazing evocations of different satires, different humanistic heads, and extremely beautiful free constructions in bronze that appeal to our most childish, primitive association that we do keep in memories from our own childhood. That's what I would say that Miro succeed to be a timeless sculptor, away from all fashion, away from all dictation of avant-garde, because he had this very approach to primitivism at the same time with a very childish sight, a childish perspective that really approached a great uh, degree of freedom himself to do these combinations. Well, it brings to mind a little bit uh, some of the works of Dubuffet and others, uh, but he also has expressed the fact that he thought in some ways that his sculpture was uh, less conventional than his painting or more unconventional. Now, of course, frankly, some of us don't find his paintings that conventional. We find them <laughs> very exciting in their own way. That critical period, it's a sort of 10 years in the mid-60s, mid-70s, when he's really engaged with sculpture. Does he also paint or does he, in a sense, devote most, most of his time to sculpture and leaves painting aside? Absolutely agree. In 60s and 70s, there were lots of things going on in Spain, worldwide, you know. Yes. And what happened was the, the Vietnam War, then the Student Revolution, 68 in Paris, then Miro fighting against Frankism in Spain when he had the first show in Barcelona in 1968. 1975, Franco died and he opened the Miro Foundation in Barcelona. 74, there was the big retrospective at the Grand Palais in Paris. So he was really going on lots of things. But however, as you said before, he did a non-conventional approach to sculpture. And how he did that, he was a groundbreaking pioneer. He was a man that was not looking back. He was a man that was not making any concessions. He was a man that was in a very, let's say, risk-taking philosophy towards sculpture. And you try to compare Miro to other sculptors around his years. It's very hard to find echoes or to find uh, a dialogue between uh, Miro or Picasso or, uh, uh, let's say, um, Chagall or Henry Moore. Or Dali. So, or Dali. So it's very important to see that Miro was totally in his world, creating a new vocabulary of three-dimensional assemblages. They have lots to do with the uh, objet trouvé and the objet surrealiste. Miro was in that case a Dadaist. Miro was in that case a uh, convinced surrealist that was indeed totally influenced by Freud and by Carl Jung. 
and trying to build different poetical three-dimensional associations with all this beautiful atmosphere that he was able to construct in his studio with the found objects. So I totally agree with you that it was a constellation of non-conventional sculptures that were really shocking everyone that was approaching Miro. I mean, in fact, I remember that uh, in 64, Giacometti approached my grandfather and said, Juan, why don't you paint your bronzes? And he did. And then his dealer, M.M. Max, said, but Miro, how am I supposed to sell these things? I'm paying fortunes for the bronzes and nothing has been sold. And he said, wait a minute, you have to wait at least for more uh, 35 years. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then the other thing that happened too, is that my grandfather was able to make these beautiful bronzes. One day when he had all these great exhibitions, many people were shocked by the freedom that he was taking. And nobody really understood what was going on with the sculptures after 40 years later. And then when people really understood this kind of risk-taking philosophy that he was really approaching in order to make these beautiful bronzes. So, Miro, in a sense, he was 60 or 70 years old physically, but emotionally and spiritually, when he was creating, he was a 20 years old daredevil, always taking risks in his studio and trying to shock the viewers, which was his most important things to do in life, you know, to shock, to provoke a scandal, to provoke a different reading and see how people would react to his bronzes. This is fascinating, uh, and we're learning a lot. At the same time, I can't not focus on the fact that, with the exception of Calder, who spent a lot of his time in, in Paris, all of the artists you mention are European, and all of the relationships are European, he is the decade in which uh, he's concentrated the majority of his sculptures is also one of the great decades in post-war art in America that was becoming increasingly mainstream rather than marginal, which had always been relative to Europe and particularly to Paris. Is it fair to say that Miro remains profoundly a, a European a Spanish, a Catalan artist. Does he look across the ocean at all? Yeah, he always said that he was like a very strong carob tree with deep roots down beneath Catalan soil. But he was able to spread, to stretch his branches to Japan, to America, and to Europe to get all these influences. And it happened because in 66, he went to uh, Tokyo for the very first time. Then in the 50s and 60s, he was going to America a lot. And he was extremely influenced by abstract expressionism. In his painting, but also, do you think, in his sculpture? In the sculpture was basically drinking from different sources, which were more nature approached to the mountain and the sea. Those things that he was like a scavenger trying to bring back to the studio and make the assemblages. But what he did get from abstract expressionism in a sculpture was freedom, an absolutely difficult thing to do for a typical academical European artist of the 20th century. So he felt more constrained when he was facing a canvas than when he could simply 
take pieces from everywhere and bring them together. There was no format. There was no, no core to fill. The freedom came a little bit then from, from that, from the absence of a kind of a window on nature and a frame. Absolutely, absolutely. You have uh, reached here a very important uh, transition because remember that uh, when we spoke about Miro in Monroe, we spoke about the influence of nature, and now we are in the 60s speaking about America and expressionism. And when he was able to really see the exhibition of Jackson Pollock in 1956 in Paris, just when he passed away, he was able to see all this all over action painting. And that was an amazing moment that changed Miro's perspective in modern art. And he said so in one interview regarding this amazing approach to freedom and this kind of joyfulness and freedom. Also in association, not only with poetics, but also with music, because when he was going to the USA, he liked a lot to do uh, visits to uh, the Bronx for gospel and the jazz clubs in Chicago where he was able to also get all these American musical influences that were really changing his way to approach sculpture in modern century, right, in 20th century, right? So you can basically see how he was shaping with this American spirit, not only the approach to painting himself, but also to the idea of assemblage from surrealism into abstract expressionism. And if you, for example, now look on side to sculptures or other sculptures from artists such as Tapies or Barceló, you can see how there has been the legacy left behind by Miro to the new generations coming right behind him, which can be felt as well. Yeah, that's very important, the issue of legacy, although his sculpture is so individualistic, so personal, that is uh, very difficult to do. Uh, hearing you speak, it's fascinating to conjure up the contrast with de Kooning, in the sense that Miro, apparently, as you say, joyfully embraced and deliberately became a sculptor, whereas, of course, if I'm not mistaken, de Kooning was kind of pressed by his dealer to do sculpture and initially was actually re very reluctant to do so. Didn't really come from deep within himself as it did with Miro and Oddly enough, and it's a fascinating subject, this so, so freeing himself from what you describe as the constraints of painting, which frankly would not be obvious. And the, the way it's been explained here on, on this podcast, I think is uh, indeed extremely useful. I think that it's also important to say that in his early age, when he was 23 years old, his uh, fine art professor used to blindfold him in order to let him touch different elements like fruits or lemons or oranges or rocks in order to later on from memory draw them in a piece of paper. And he always said that that experience of uh, touching uh, elements blindfolded in order to exercise his uh, memory and his visual memory through the sense of touch helped him a lot to later work on clay, ceramics, and later work these different elements on the assemblages. The sense of touch. We know that a great many artists uh, send their works to foundries yeah. and then recuperate them. Yeah. Some, 
actually go to the foundries and actually, uh, with tools, work on the bronzes themselves, on the patina, on changing certain aspects of it, and and all that did early on, not later on. What was the involvement of Miro in the foundries and uh, in the final appearance of uh, the cast? Miro was going throughout his life to work with seven different foundries throughout uh, Europe, in Barcelona, in Paris, and in Verona, in Italy. And the way he used to work was to send his crates with his elements and then go to the foundry himself, spend a week working all the different assemblages. And once mm -hmm. they were finished, they were made in plaster. And then my grandfather used to go to the plaster to sign with a nail on the plaster mirror. And then with the dealers, he used to say, three sculptures for Memac in Paris and three for Pierre Matisse in New York. You mean he's creating additions? Yes, he was always working in additions. And, and always, when he was able to see the final cast that was basically with lost wax, lost wax technique finished in the foundries, he used to go again to see the final result of the patina. For Miro, the patinas were absolutely important. Very, very, uh, let's say, capital for his sculptures. Yes, because some of them have actually, some are black and some are brownish. I mean, there are real um, variations in the, in the appearance of the bronzes. Yes, they were brown, shiny, black, shiny, green, that had this kind of Roman old from 2000 years ago, bronze sculpture found in a different digging for the archaeologist as he had been able to keep that sense of history from the real touch of Roman bronzes. And then he was able to go to the foundries and once they were able to finish the total first element with the final patina, he would say, voila, allez-y. And they would make all the rest of different editions to be sent to Paris or to New York. During uh, the Franquista period, was he in fact constrained, restrained in certain ways? Were, were there really many things that he could not do that suddenly opened up in the new world of the free Spain? Absolutely. Many people say, why Miro was not shut down by the dictator uh, Franco? I said, well, because he made the big mistake of shutting down the great universal Spanish poet Federico García Lorca in 1936. And all the international uh, intellectuals really blamed that killing, you know. And Franco then understood that you cannot fool around with important, renowned international artists such as Picasso, such as Miró, such as Dalí, because then the image of Frankism was really uh, damaged, right, by the international criticism and international opinion. And Miró was clever enough to go to Mallorca this island where I am right now, because his wife was from Mallorca, his mother was from Mallorca. And Franco said, okay, as far as I know, Miro is out of the mainland, he's in an island, he won't bother me at all. But he was always constructing a great guerrilla beneath the 
let's say, uh, Franco regime, helping musicians, helping artists, helping poets, giving them money, bringing to Spain um, different American uh, great people such as John Cage to perform here. And what happened was that when finally Franco knew that my grandfather was going to have an exhibition in Barcelona in 1968, he sent the prime minister. And my grandfather was claiming that he had a fever and he couldn't take the plane. That was an invention because, of course, he was feeling very well, but he said... He didn't want to be there. I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to have my photo next to the Franco's uh, prime minister. That would be totally unbearable and embarrassing. So he didn't go. But he did the show anyhow. So it was kind of a guerrilla underground in very much guerrilla sense of promoting artists, promoting art in the battlefield. But he was not a, a guerrilla in, in his art. I may, may be misinterpreting, but his art is fairly apolitical. It, he doesn't Absolutely. use his art, is it correct? He doesn't really use his art as a political statement. He did it in 1937 in the Spanish Republic Pavilion when he had a major painting next to the Picasso's Guernica and Calder's Mercury Fountain. And then later on, he was able to really do different approaches to uh, Franco. But of course, as you said before, in his art, you cannot sense is apolitical. I totally agree with you. He had this much more poetical vision, a much more constellation vision, a much more ironic vision with lots of uh, sensual irony as well with uh, female, male sexual organs as well that has been somehow disappearing around all the painting and the sculptures. But as you said before, it's not really political. But his engagement in Catalonia, it is. Miro had a great dream of making this triangle. Number one was the Miro Foundation in Barcelona when it was opened in 1975, just when the dictator uh, Franco passed away. That was for him a great sense of freedom because he was able to give to the Spanish culture a platform in order to let artists, painters, poets, musicians uh, wait a place to, to express themselves. The Miro Foundation in Barcelona is a great, great, great modern foundation that has an absolutely amazing uh, Miro uh, collection of sculptures, paintings, drawings, engravings, plus a huge archive with his letters and his sketches and drawings, and has different exhibitions of contemporary artists as well, and concerts and, and poetry reading, which is... It's, it's a public space. I mean, with, public space, you display yes. those works. Okay. Yes, it. yes, yes. Then in uh, Mallorca, a foundation that opened in 1992, around 27 years ago, we have the great chance of enjoying a great uh, museum space built by Rafael Moneo, great architect, Spanish architect. Then the studio by my grandfather built in 1956, that is a place where you can really see Miro's paintings, Miro's graffitis, Miro's drawings, Miro's mm -hmm. sketches. It's a huge studio where my grandfather used to work for 25 years, which is an amazing, worthwhile trip to see. And then up a little bit from the... Uh, stairway. It's a huge uh, building from the 18th century 
where my grandfather uh, worked uh, great uh, canvases, large canvases. Then he also made a sculpture and print shop. And today you can have uh, young artists coming to the foundation to work in Juan Miro's print shop, which is an honor and a great sense of generous approach to the next generation by Juan Miro. And finally, the Miro Farm, the Miro Foundation in Monroe, I will tell you that that was bought by Miro's mother in 1911 when he turned 18 years old. And then he wrote a letter to his father saying, this is it, I will dedicate my life to be an artist. Is the place where you can sense the spirit, you can sense the nature, you can sense the mountains, you can sense the light of the Mediterranean and all the great inspiration that my grandfather got from the very beginning because that foundation really turned my grandfather an artist. But today's uh, Miro Foundation in Monroe is amazing because you can also see a beautiful studio built in 1950 where he worked lots of sculptures and different ceramics, of course, with different paintings and illustrated books. So you can see as well this beautiful place where Miro himself used to spend so many years, 20 years, working on sculptures and paintings and ceramics. So we are very lucky today because with the Miro Triangle, we have three Miro studios still there that you can walk inside in the very same spot where Miro himself was working with his paintings and his easels and his brushes. So it's a really fantastic experience to walk in Miro's studios. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to have the, the original context. Joan, I'm deeply grateful to you taking uh, the time to speak to us, to speak to us from such a knowledgeable punto de vista point of view on the artist and inflected so much by your own relationship, by your blood relationship, by the fact that you knew the artist. And I think that connection, uh, your devotion to his work, has been a lifetime uh, task and a joyful one for you, I think has illuminated us uh, enormously. And I'm deeply grateful for uh, you're taking the time and joining us uh, uh, here at Aquavella through uh, the miracle of modern media. I think that is uh, absolutely pleasure and a great privilege for me to be part of this exhibition with you. It's a beautiful approach to Miro's sculpture and I would really, really tell all the visitors in the US, in New York, they have the chance to go to see this beautiful exhibition to really go because it's a once in a lifetime experience to see these beautiful sculptures, these beautiful bronzes that my grandfather and with this great setting and with the great catalog that will be published in the occasion. So I really want to thank the great effort to all the Aquavelas and to you, Philip, to be able to make this exhibition possible. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. thank you our listeners for joining us in this episode of the picture conversations with aquabella galleries follow us on instagram and subscribe to our email newsletter to keep up to date on exhibitions and artist news 
And be sure to like and subscribe to The Picture to hear other episodes in the series featuring artists, curators, journalists, and collectors. For Joan Pugnet-Miro, and from all of us at Aquabella Galleries, thank you for listening.